Good morning, church. This summer, we're going through a series through the book of Psalms, and we hope that you join us each week as we go through these meditations in the Old Testament. And our theme for the summer has been hearts poured up, right? Psalms are, are very commonly, the theme of them is, is the psalmist crying out to God and pouring their heart up to God uh, with praise or prayer or requests for protection. And so as we go through this series, we hope that we too would understand the value and importance of, of pouring our hearts up to God. Uh, the heading for the psalm that we will be talking through this morning, Psalm 16, is what's called a mictum psalm. And this term means engraved writing, writing that is truth that should be preserved forever, sometimes termed as golden psalms because they contain extra detail that has messianic uh, prophecy in them. And so as we get to that piece of this psalm, uh, I'll highlight that for you so you can see uh, what's interesting about, about David's commentary about uh, eternal life. As modern readers, when we approach Psalm 16, we come with, with a unique modern lens that actually creates challenges for us. And the challenges that we have are, are cultural constructs that we have today um, to find confidence and security in the things of this world and become entranced with striving for personal peace and affluence. Towards the end of his life, in, in, in the last of his published works, Francis Schaeffer began to argue against the attitude of personal peace and affluence. Schaeffer said, as long as they can have these things, uh, they, they will give up anything. Meaning that, this dynamic that if we can have the things of this world, personal peace and affluence, that we'll give up anything else to achieve that. And it, and it has formed a nihilistic culture where people focus on self. A few years ago, one of my closest Christian friends stopped going to the church that he was attending uh, with his wife and his family. And uh, I had noticed a shift in their life towards personal peace and affluence and that, that their desires were, were shifted that way. And what Francis Schaeffer is talking about here is not that we just want to be peaceful with other people, but that at, at the expense of convictions, right, that we would throw off convictions to achieve this dynamic of having just, uh, you know, a, a peaceful, easy life and affluence, right? We know we all know what that one is. And so as I, I watched their life, uh, he got a new job. He started making more money. They, sh they changed from uh, living in uh, a, a modest middle-class home, and they bought a massive house, and they had this new mortgage payment. And uh, I remember us talking about what he had to pay on this new home, and uh, he was just... You know, pondering how much he was going to have to work to achieve that house and how much travel time. And it just became uh, the, the driving force of their life was sustaining this lifestyle. And so as uh, you know, time went on, we, I noticed that their church involvement started to drop and they were just attending on the weekends. And then eventually they even stopped doing that. So one day uh, I was at their house having, having dinner one time and he and I went to go pick up some stuff in the store. And we were in the car. I, I said, can I ask you a question? And he said, uh, sure. And I said, uh, a tough question. And I said, I recently read a book by C.S. Lewis that talked about the American shift towards personal peace and affluence and how it affects our lives. And, and I, uh, I've noticed areas in my life where it affects me, where I become you know, willing to uh, you know, spend... Uh, disproportionate amount of resources on 
things, right? The things of this world versus on investing in God's kingdom. And um, how have, and I asked him, how have, has personal peace and influence affected or become more valuable than Christianity for you? Now, at this point, he knows that I know that he doesn't attend church anymore um, and he's not involved in church anymore. And he said, without any pause at all, when we had our fourth kid and we moved into this house, um, we just couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, the, the, we talked about the snowball effect of, you know, just becoming more and more busy and losing sight of the importance and value of, of serving in ministry. Oh, it fell down. There we go. Is that better? Can you hear me better? Okay. Sorry about that. The... Um, and so for their family, it, it dissipated, right? They stopped attending church. They, um, and and, and we, we talked through that. And I said, you know, you've completely disappeared from Christianity. But I, I know that we talk about, you know, Christ and ministry when I'm at your house. And uh, how, how is it so? How did that happen? And it was just a nice time for us to discuss this and, and encourage them to get back in, into church again. But, you know, the, the reality is in our modern society, you know, nothing is certain. And so people put their confidence in things and saying, if I can only get this right, then I can fix my relationship with God or, or then I can start serving Christ in my life or in my church if I can achieve this or that. But there's nothing that's certain, right? Our, the, our economy's not certain, the multinational tensions, local violence, our own financial future isn't certain, um, <clears throat> This same guy years ago uh, actually uh, was doing quite well, and uh, and then you know the economic downturn hit, and uh, their family struggled significantly. And then after things picked back up in 2011-12, uh, I saw a major shift in their in their financial status. But also that 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 shift also you know reduced their church involvement. And, and you know th th our sense of security, our sense of confidence in, in what we have. Uh, can, can drive that. Even small things where our confidence relies in a sense of security. Things like a security system on our home, uh, you know, security cameras, uh, you know, the new ring doorbell where you can actually see on your phone who's ringing your doorbell. These things provide for us a sense of security and, and, and a confidence to protect the things we have inside our home. Um, and, and, and none of those are bad things in and of themselves, but the over-focus of them is when it can become a challenge. Even as in the Bible, right, it says um, <clears throat> the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? It's not money itself, it's the love of money, this, this overindulgence or over-focus in money that creates the problem. And so this begs the question in all of our lives, is what is our ultimate security? Where do we get our confidence in this life? Is it in our financial future? Is it in our jobs? Is it in relationships or is it in God? And as we study this Psalm 16, we'll see that David, that David uh, places his ultimate confidence in God. And, you know, he, he is not uh, perfect. He had uh, a lot of challenges in his life, sinful challenges, also major, you know, uh, battle challenges in his life. But yet uh, you hear his cry through this Psalm, that his desire, the, the, the beat of his heart is that he wants to honor God and he wants his confidence to be in God. So turn with me to Psalm 16, and starting in verses 1 and 2. And we'll see 
uh, an Old Testament believer who doesn't have a full-orbed picture, right? He doesn't have a full understanding of heaven. Jesus hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't died on the cross for our sins yet. And thus, uh, he's concerned about what happens to him after death. And we see that highlighted here. Verses 1 and 2. The first point that I want us to see in this verse is to be confident in the preservation of the Lord. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Right? He starts out with, preserve me, O God, in you I take refuge. This dynamic of crying out to the Lord, a prayer, a petition for God to protect him. Right? We know that in his life he experienced great multinational uh, challenges. And so for him to ask for that protection, uh, I could see that. I could see the value of that as I read through the Psalms. You can see it in his life, that the need for God to protect him and for him to, to uh, want that protection. In the second half of the verse it says, I say to the Lord, and in my Bible it's all caps, L-O-R-D. This is, I say to Yahweh, right? He's using the name of God. I say to Yahweh, you are my redeemer, you are my sovereign, you are my Lord, my master. And the, the word that he uses here uh, for preserve me is, called, is shamar. And it's most commonly translated as a means to keep me or to, to build a hedge around me to protect me. And then and now, hedges serve two purposes, right? To keep outsiders out and, and insiders in. By using a word that's most commonly used by shepherds, David is asking God to protect him like a shepherd protects his flock. One time I saw a man who uh, had a beautiful home in Redondo Beach. He put a 10-foot chain link fence around his front yard. And I thought, that's really strange. I can't believe the city approved to put a 10-foot chain link fence around his front yard. Um, that's awkwardly large and, and high, right? <laughs> like if you imagine, not like an 8-foot normal size fence. This was a 10-foot thing. And I thought, there's no way. This is so strange. What is he using that fence for? And I couldn't figure it out. And, then as, and every day I would drive past it, I think, someday I'm going to catch this guy outside and ask him, what's that fence for? Right? And uh, the house gets finished and built. And, uh, you know, and then landscaping starts to go in. And I saw him outside. And so I, 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 I said, told my wife, I'm going to run over there and ask him. What, what, tell me what's up with the fence. Uh, and my wife's like, don't bother him, that's rude. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to be rude, I'm just going to ask what the fence is for. <laughs> and uh, so I, I go over and I introduce myself and said, hey, uh, I'm sure you have a purpose for a 10-foot fence. Tell me uh, what the fence is for. And he's like, oh, I, I just moved here from the East Coast, and I had a, a large hedge in my uh, front yard on the East Coast, and the hedge doesn't stay straight and without structure. And so the chain link fence is going to provide structure for a hedge I'm going to grow uh, on top of the fence. It'll provide structure for the hedge, but it also will keep cats out. And now I don't like cats, so I thought this guy was brilliant, right? Because it keeps, uh, it keeps cats out of it from, from going underneath the hedge and into his yard and, uh, you know, and doing what they do. But, um, you know, so that was his strategy. He had a strategy, and he was willing to commit to it uh, amidst having, you know, a chain link fence in front of his very large home uh, for quite some time while the hedge grew. Uh, it actually took like a year and a half for the hedge to look nice, uh, which was a long time. But this dynamic that, you know, he understood that it, 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 the, the fence gave structure to the hedge, but the hedge itself also provided protection for his, his yard, 
uh, things he wanted to keep out, right? And things he wanted to keep in, which was his children. Um, but also this dynamic, right, that uh, David is saying, yeah, preserve me or, or put a hedge of protection around me to protect me from the challenges on the outside. David, with all his splendor and his riches, in verse 2, states, I have no good apart from God. Right, verse 2 in, in your verse, uh, the second half of that. I have no good apart from God. Right, in all his riches and his splendor, he still magnifies God in this. He, he looks at what he has and he, and he recognizes that he has no good apart from the Lord. And I think uh, for somebody in his context to see uh, his possessions with that perspective is wonderful. Is wonderful. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 also gives us a perspective to see our good works in a particular perspective. Ephesians 2.10 in the New Testament. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? And so we see this dynamic of how David is, is presenting his good works and saying that there's no good without God. And then um, in the New Testament, this mindset of us seeing our good works in Christ Jesus, right? The work that we do that's good is, is through Christ. So this week, I want to encourage you to examine the works in your life, the things in your life that you consider good, your biggest achievements in life, the things that you're the most proud of in your life, and, and check to see if they're aligned, as David is doing here, and are they aligned with God? And if they're not, right, realign them. Find ways to say, God, help me to, to give you glory in this area of my life. Help me to exalt you or to thank you or to praise you for these things. If your, your best works are in the corporate world, find ways to live with integrity there, to be salt and light in your corporate culture that you work in. So you can be an example for the, everyone around you. Find ways to bring dignity to other employees who are either under you or even uh, work around you as clients. Inspire others to know God through your life. How we make a difference in our communities is, is what matters in terms of our testimony. Right? We have a testimony to tell. It's not a testimony to hold within. And so for the church to make an impact in this world around us, each of us in our spheres of influence must be willing to live for God and to count our works as good through Christ. Commonly, I, I hear people as they become a Christian and they're trying to compartmentalize their life and figure out, you know, what is it, that, how do I now need to change? Are there certain behavior patterns I need to shift because I'm a Christian now? Um, how do I live out faith and life? How do I balance life and faith? And David in verse 2 says, I have no good apart from you. We need to see our life and faith and our works as both a privilege, a privilege to live for God, but also a responsibility for how our testimony is in the world around us. Second, second point on your notes is be confident in the people of the Lord. Be confident in the people of the Lord. The first one was be confident in the preservation of the Lord, how he preserves your life. The second is be confident in the people of the Lord. In verse 3 and 4, says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
You see, as modern believers, we're part of the family of God. And Ephesians talks about that dynamic in chapter 3. 3, 14, 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. John Calvin writes it this way. We ought, therefore, highly to value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God and regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with their society. And this we will actually do if we wisely reflect in what uh, true excellence and dignity consist and do not allow vain splendor of the world and its deceitful pomps to dazzle our eyes. See, this quote illustrates strongly the message of verses 3 and 4, and it beckons us to align our values and our faith. This quote uh, balances out even those two verses, right? Verse 3, where he says, The saints of the land are the excellent ones. This is David, right, as uh, a mighty king, giving praise to the people, giving praise to the people, and saying, They're the excellent ones. They are the ones in whom is my delight. That he takes joy in seeing uh, the church flourish in, in, their, in their service of the Lord. And as we think of our life as Christians, are, do we take joy in, uh, in relationships with other believers? Do we uh, make a priority to spend our time to bring mutual maturation of faith uh, of other believers, right? Of, of striving to say, how can we grow together? How can we encourage one another? How can we develop ministries to, to strengthen the church or strengthen our, our evangelistic outreach to the community. Is that, is that a priority of our life? Is it how we, uh, you know, what we count as our greatest good in our life? Or do we need to realign that? <clears throat> Third, be confident in the praise of the Lord. As we see David continuing through this psalm, we, we arrive at verses 5 to 8. These four verses of Scripture can be seen under three subheadings that I, that I formed for you. The first of those three is praise God for His blessings. When, when God blesses your life, you should praise Him for that. right? Because it helps us rightly orient our mind towards respecting and revering God for how, how God has blessed us in our lives. Verses 5 and 6 display this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. See, this is uh, David looking out at the things that he has, at the family that he has, at his inheritance, at you know, the, the, the descendants behind him. And he looks at that and he says, and he praises the Lord for that. And that's a, a wonderful perspective for him to have. Second, praise God for his counsel. Right? When the Lord instructs us through his word, or through prayer, we should praise Him for that. Verse 7, it says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This is pausing for a purpose, right? He's pausing for a purpose. It says, in the night He instructs me, and, uh, and the Lord gives Him counsel. It's taking that, that, that evening part of life to quiet down the busyness of life, to uh, remove the, the racing thoughts out of your mind, and to say, God, I just want to reflect on my day, and, and work through areas where I may not have trusted you fully today and uh, recount the ways you blessed me today and just taking those moments to, to reflect on God. <clears throat> I know for me, it's hard for me sometimes to shut down my brain and focus fully on God 
without being distracted by thoughts of things I have to do tomorrow or the next day. And so I try to keep a pad of paper next to my bed, and as I'm praying and, and thinking and reading the Word, uh, I, if, if something comes to my mind and tries to distract me from what I'm trying to achieve, which is focus on God, I'll just write myself a note. Don't forget this. Or, or I'll write like, you know, uh, call this person or different tasks like that that are trying to consume my mind to help me to refocus on what I want to do, which is give God uh, preeminence in my life and focus uh, on my time with Him. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, it can be harder than others, right? You can be very stressed about something and it can be difficult to um, give God fully that, that time that, that we should and ought to, to give Him. But what comes out of it is a, is a peace and that assurance that God is with you through whatever challenges you're facing in those future days. And David is aware of this, right? <clears throat> Psalm 119 has 176 verses. And most of the verses are about Scripture and, and how Scripture can teach us. And so David, as, as he writes that, you can see the tenor of the, of the text just, just be a beautiful display of, of his appreciation of the Word of God and his trust in the Word of God. Uh, Psalm 118.12 says, Blessed are you, O Lord, you teach me your statutes. And, and uh, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 108, 124, 135, 171. This continued dynamic of um, David trusting the Lord to teach him. You know, sometimes I wish that we learned through osmosis or sleep learning. Right? That we could uh, you know, put in an audio book of the Bible or some other content that you want to learn. Put in some headphones, go to sleep, and you could learn while you sleep, Right? And so, uh, as I read this text, and it says, uh, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I was like, oh, what is David saying here? And so I even distracted myself and said, is he saying here that at nighttime while he sleeps, his heart instructs him? Because that's awesome. Um, maybe it's true. So I go on the internet, start searching, like sleep learning and stuff like that. And uh, that was just all a waste of time. I shouldn't have done it. But uh, I was, you know, research, which means I'm, I'm wasting time. But um, on, on Google. And so, but sometimes, right, what I believe he's referring to here is at night, at night when he calms his spirit, when he's retired from the day and he's there at night, his heart instructs him as he's praying with the Lord, his heart instructs him to honor the Lord. In addition, right, in the, in the Old Testament, we see many times where uh, people receive visions or dreams uh, in their sleep. And so you can, right? You can, God can speak to you uh, through many forms and even in a vision or a dream. I know uh, because I keep a pad of paper by my bed, sometimes I'll have dreams that are strange, right? Weird things occurring in dreams where it's just a, a mishmash of, of information from your day that turn out into some strange dream. But sometimes they're actually clear and instructive or helpful for my life or give me uh, an insightful idea of something I can implement at church and I'll wake up and I'll go, oh, Lord, that's a good idea. If I go back to sleep, I'm not going to remember this idea. And, and I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I, I know it's happened to me where I'll say, oh, I'll remember this. It's an important idea. I'll remember that one. And then I'll go back to sleep and I wake in the morning, and it's gone. I was like, that was very important. Why can't I remember it now? It's morning. So now I try to write it, write, just write down the basics of it, like da 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 and write down like something, and then, uh, and then I can go back to sleep and still feel peace to fall back asleep. But uh, and so sometimes God you know, gives visions like that. Uh, when we first built the skate park that we had in the teen center, uh, actually very soon we're going to be leasing that to the, the Lazy Acres grocery store. 
think we're like 90 days away now, so we're really close to them uh, moving in, which is good for us because uh, their riches are our church's blessing, so praise God for that. Um, but when we were building that out, I, I actually w- was fully asleep and dreaming about like us building this skate park. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I don't want it to become boring for the skaters when they come. And in my dream, I'm, I'm, this is not actually, I'm not awake having these thoughts. I'm actually asleep having these thoughts. And I was like, how can we switch it up without having to spend a bunch of money to switch it up? And so I, in my mind, I saw like myself changing pieces of the skate park like easily. And I was like, how can that happen? And, and so I, uh, I had drawn a picture and then I went back to sleep and I wake up in the morning and I saw my picture, and it was interchangeable, like, poles and rails that had preset mounts. And then I just wrote, like, my notes said, preset mounts, interchangeable pieces. And so then when we met with the contractor, I said, I had this idea for preset mounts. And then the skaters can pick and choose which poles or rails they want to ride. And they, there's preset locations around the park, and they can just shift out these poles to, uh, or little boxes that snap in, like a snap-and-go system. Can we do that? And, and then we did it, and it was just a wonderful thing for 12 years of being able to make it you know, diversify uh, with a simple change. And that came at nighttime, right? In the night, right, my heart uh, instructs me. That was a nighttime thing, a small thing, but it allowed us to, to expand our ministry and make the space more flexible and become a larger blessing. But that doesn't happen all the time, right? Sometimes dreams are just really weird dreams. And you just wake up in the morning, you're like, I don't get that one. I don't see how it makes any sense. Um, I've had dogs with guns and running around and, and chasing me. And I think dogs don't really hold guns. They, can't, they don't have opposable thumbs. But, hey, yeah, so that one wasn't as instructive. The theme uh, of, this, uh, of this psalm, right, is this dynamic of confidence in God. Confidence. And the second one, it was praise God for his counsel. The third is praise God for his protection. Praise God for his protection. And we see this in verse 8. And this concludes this first section of Scripture here. Uh, So he starts with requesting for protection in verse 1. And he concludes this section by praising God for his protection. So you see the transition for David here as he moves from, uh, you know, praying that God may protect him to praising God for protecting him. It says, I've set the Lord always before me because at my right hand I shall not be shaken. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And this concept of, um, this highlights, right, that God deserves the place of preeminence in your life. In in verse 8, it it is positioned at the right hand. A fully armored warrior uh, in, in that time would have his weapon in his right hand and a shield in his left hand. And so he would be protecting himself and whoever was on his left. And so the person on, uh, on the left, in some cases, would be a king or somebody that they wanted to defend. And so for a king to put someone on their right, that was the most trusted person that they would have because their shield's on their left. And so not only could I hide behind my shield, but his shield is also helping me on his left. And you could, you could gain from that as you fight a battle. And so uh, this, this place of honor, right, to be on the right to protect and so in our, in our passage, it's saying that um, the Lord, the contrast is the Lord is positioned at someone's right hand here. So he is positioned as the defender, 
with the shield in hand. In Psalm 109 and, the, and in multiple places throughout the Old Testament, we can see God playing the role of the protector. In Psalm 109 it says, that for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save them. To save them. And so throughout Scripture we see this theme of God caring for the weak and the needy. But our world sometimes has this reversed. Right? This, this dynamic of the place of preeminence. I was eating lunch with a local Beach City's businessman one time in our community and we were talking about life and business and, um, and he said to me, let me make this clear, work is work and life is life. If you learn to keep those separate, uh, you'll learn how to, to balance your life. And I thought, oh, that, that sounds like a good idea. You, you, know, you, 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 you don't bring your work home too much, you, you manage that balance so that way um, you can you know, make sure you, you have a proper family life and a proper work life. I thought that's what he was saying. And he's like, no, 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 let me, let me clarify. I'm a businessman that's a Christian, not a Christian businessman. And he went on to say that business comes first from nine to five. And, and he talked about sometimes I have to make decisions that I'm not proud of, that I, that, that, that I shouldn't be respected for. But uh, in my life, uh, I, I honor God. And I thought, no, no, you're wrong here. You're wrong. God is not like a trophy. You, put, you say, okay, it's nine to five. God goes on the shelf, and then I do my, my work, right? And then, oh, I'm off. I'm going to take God back and put him back into my life and give him that primary place of, of reverence again, right? This is not the place of uh, preeminence that God deserves. The text says that David always sets the Lord before him and that God's at his right hand to defend him. As David goes through life, he's confident that he'll be safe. When he wakes in the morning, he, uh, he does his devotions. He's confident in God, making decisions throughout the day. God is involved with that. And so it's, it's easy, right, for people to compartmentalize their life, to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and they, 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 they don't intertwine. And so as I mentioned earlier in, the, in our, our talk, is that if we are in, in business, working with integrity, right, uh, treating other people with, with dignity is important, and it's, and it's valuable for us. Albert Moeller is one of the greatest Christian thinkers in our modern time. He framed this in an article he wrote called Compromise and Confusion in the Churches. He says, The church today finds itself assaulted without and even within by a culture uh, of untruth, anti-truth, postmodern irrationality. In fact, uh, researchers recently report that a majority of evangelicals themselves reject the notion of absolute truth. The seductive lure of postmodern relativism has pervaded many evangelical pulpits and countless evangelical pews, often couched as humility, sensitivity, or sophistication. Right? So you say, oh, this is just how it is in our modern society. This is how you have to do business in modern society, is what he's saying here. The culture has us in its grip, and many find no discomfort. That last line is, is hard for me to hear, right? Uh, that culture has... American Christianity in its grip, and some people are saying, ah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Fourth, be confident in the presence of the Lord. Uh, 16, 9 to 11 deals with this reality. And it deals with this not only in this life, but also in eternal life. And I think this is, this is the passage that uh, when we look at it and we study it, we'll see this messianic comment, right? Early in the sermon I talked about there'll be a section of this passage that kind of four looks to, to the coming Christ, this is the passage that does that, 9 to 11. Here it is. 
Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For you are not abandoned, my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pressures, pleasures forevermore. See, the, it starts in this section, therefore, in verse 9. The therefore that's used here is saying all of this, verses 1 to 8, therefore this, right? So all of this, the prayers and petitions that he gives in the first few verses, the praising God in the, in the, in the next verses, the, uh, his celebration of God giving him security in verses 5 and 6, lead to him having confidence in death that God will protect him in verses 9 and 10. The psalmist is filled with joy, right, as he can kind of look at the end of his life with the perspective of those first eight verses. He says, but the Lord will not per permit the Holy One to suffer internal annihilation. The phrase see decay in verse 10 is a metaphor for total isolation or banishment from the Lord. It's not clear whether the psalmist had in mind the experience of God's presence in the life hereafter or specifically the resurrection of his body. But in the, in the uh, New Testament preaching, uh, this verse, they have a particular uh, apologetic significance. Peter in Acts 2.27-34 and Paul in Acts 13.35 quoted verse 10 as a proof for the resurrection of Jesus in, in, their, in their text. So David gains a vision and an understanding of life and death and the future promises of heaven here, and he has a confidence in that. Now we as New Testament Christians, right, we, we understand and we have the entire New Testament. We, we know that Christ died on the cross for our sins. If we believe in him, we can have eternal life. And so we have that confidence. But David uh, didn't know that. That was still prophetically in front of him. And so as he looks toward his death, he is ex expecting to die and be there, except for when someday the Messiah does come, does live that perfect life, and uh, is ascended to heaven, that he would then get to rise with him. We'll see this in our, in our text. Now, there's the principle in the New Testament called the already and not yet. Essentially, if Jesus brought the kingdom, and, the, and if Christians have begun to experience the eschatological blessings through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then it's perhaps natural to expect to want the eschaton now, meaning that I, I'm tired of, of living with pain, with suffering, with death, with uh, sin, and I want God to solve those things now. I'm a Christian. Why can't God remove those things and provide his blessing to us here? Why do we have to wait for the perfect in heaven, right? That's precisely what Jesus doesn't offer, right? He even says to the New Testament believers, uh, in this world you will have trouble. And thus the present disciple of Jesus must be prepared, you and I, for something less, indeed the reality of suffering and potentially death, even while confessing the, the, uh, the faith in Jesus, uh, thereby expressing the good news he has announced to the world around us. Okay, here we go. So if we look at these two verses together, Acts 2.25-36, to they'll put it on the screen because it's a longer text. It says, uh, I'll read it from there. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Right? That's very similar to what we had in ours. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, right, from our text, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence, right, that's where I got this theme of confidence from for our uh, message for today. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, right? So they're saying he's still there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned. So David had this confidence that he would not be abandoned, that someday Jesus would come and, and, and would achieve for him what he, he, you and I could not achieve. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up, uh, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The second verse from this is Acts 13, 34-37. And, and as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, that he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore say... He says also in another psalm, you will uh, not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God, he his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, meaning uh, Jesus didn't see corruption. And so this, this reality, as we look at this uh, as modern uh, Christian believers, Right? We have the full perspective. We have every opportunity to be confident in, 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 um, <clears throat> in the life that we have, that God is with us, God will empower us and strengthen us through the work of the Holy Spirit to live through this life in a way that honors Him. In addition to that, right, we also have this confidence that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that He rose again, which is the pinnacle of our, of our faith, uh, and that we can have eternal life with Christ in heaven for eternity if we have faith in him and so we our confidence is, is quite strong in that as a modern believer whereas uh, for David right it's this hope that this will happen our hope isn't something that has happened do you see the, the difference there and I think our confidence should be stronger should be stronger than even David's was and so as we live out our faith hopefully we can achieve that so I have two things that I want us to see uh, from this section First, that he is present, right? That God is present from, uh, with us. This verse reveals that. It reveals David's confidence that he's present with him in this life and forevermore. Uh, that he is ever, present everywhere. He's omnipresent. That we are located at one place and at one time. Um, the, the historical testimony, John Calvin says, well, then we are accustomed to regard every object as confined to a place where our sense discerns it. No place can be assigned to God. We must rise higher than our corporal and mental discernment. In uh, Matthew 18, 20, there's a section of Scripture that says, where two or more are gathered, I am with them. And people commonly say, okay, there's two or more gathered here. God is with us. But what about the person who's alone dying from cancer? Is God with them when they're a singular person alone? 
uh, dying with cancer. God is with them, right? The, the context of this passage is important, and it's always important in Scripture. If we read the larger context of that section, what, what, what the, the, the section is talking about is when people and uh, elders or church leadership go to uh, address somebody who has sin in their life or some serious sin in their life, the Bible says to bring two or three so it's not you know, one word against another, but there's two or three witnesses going, or two or three elders to go there and do that task. And, and the Lord says, I am with you. I'm with you because you're doing a difficult thing in addressing sin. So God is just reassuring them that he's with them in this moment to do this task. It has nothing to do with the geolocation of, of God or where he's located, right? God's everywhere. He's in each of our hearts and lives, and he's, uh, he's timeless as well. So... Uh, that's he's present uh we are he's ever present we are we are located in one place the historical testimony and the biblical testimony john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god the word was god and acts 2 25 to, to 36 we read right this dynamic that uh god is revealing himself uh then and was present with david but also present with us now and present with us for eternity secondly that he is active right that he's active in the world He's active in the church, and he's active in our lives. Jesus doesn't just ascend to heaven, and that's the end of the story. Right? He ascends, and he sends. He sends the Holy Spirit to be with the people of God. The Spirit's always active in the church and the believer. And this is what empowers us to live out our life. Every Christian has a testimony to tell. As Christian believers, we have the supreme confidence in death because of the work of Christ on the cross. And the central truth is that God is present with his people and active in their lives. And that we should be confident in God and that he cares for his creation. As we close today and prepare our hearts for the offering and communion, I want to challenge us to, to see as David saw. Although he had challenges in his life and sin in his life, though his cry, right, his, his undercurrent um, of his heart was to cry out to the Lord and to be confident in Him throughout all of life. He's confident that the Lord uh, will preserve him. He's confident in the people of the Lord. He's confident in the praise of the Lord, to praise Him throughout all aspects of life. And he's confident in the presence of, the, of, of God. And, uh, and as I stated, we have every opportunity to have the entire Bible, to have this confidence. And to, for me to see this level of confidence uh, for, um, for life after death from David, who had hope that the Messiah would come. It's a future hope, right? We, we're able to, to look back and see that Christ has already achieved this for us. We just have to believe and live it out. Amen. Let's take a time to prayer, prepare our hearts, and we'll take communion together. Our, our system is very simple. Come forward. Uh, you can... Uh, Get the elements from the elders, take them back to your seat, hold on to them, and then all lead us through that together as a congregation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to be the church, to come together to gather, to gather to strengthen one another as this text highlights the value of celebrating one another. To gather to exalt your name to be confident in who you are as our great God. To be confident that you'll protect us, you'll preserve us, 
and then you offer eternal life. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, to remember the great work that you achieved on the cross, that that would give us a great confidence that we can live for you because you have poured out your blood for us so we may be healed, restored, renewed, and forgiven if we repent. Amen.